Hello, everyone. You're listening to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest for this program is Dr. Catherine Ziff, an assistant professor in the Department of Counseling at Wake Forest University. Today, we will be discussing information contained in Dr. Ziff's recently released book, Art Break, A Creative Guide to Joyful and Productive Classrooms. Catherine, welcome. Thank you very much, Scott. Great pleasure to be here with you today. Well, we're happy to have mm-hmm. you here, too. Um, I think I want to start um, by having you talk about what art break are in sort of a very general sense so that we can set a stage for listeners before we get into some of the details. An art break is, uh, at its heart, is a a guided play um, uplift in a child's day at school. And Art Break with a capital A, uh, which is a a program that I um, developed over a period of six years um, here in Athens County in the schools, is a choice-based therapeutic art studio based on several, um, a framework from the calls on art therapy, it calls on counseling, and calls on um, child-centered practice. Mm -hmm. Now, your your advocacy for using Art Break as a therapeutic intervention actually came from you uh, coming to understand how it was used with medical students. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yes, it was. An, it, I was inspired by, uh, actually it was work in my doctoral program some years ago of reading about and then beginning to explore the work of Marianne Bartley, who was a, a Philadelphia artist, and she was asked to to create a, a, an art studio that was part of a medicine and art class for medical school students at what was then called the Medical College of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And I'm just going to read her quotes her, sure. her from her writing she says her art studio was designed to be a restorative place to res- to support learning their medical students dragging their cares and woes relaxed expressed themselves allowed creativity to flow and emerged as active learners ready to tackle whatever they confront from new and more productive directions. Those were her words about what what she was able to do. And it was a, what she did was provide some skills, uh, do some teaching on just basic things you can do in the art studio, and then supported them in their work, in their creative work. And my thought was, if an art break could do this for medical students, what might it do for all these elementary school children that mm-hmm. I was uh, working with and wanted to be able to see uh, every week, touch base with, and what, what would be a good way to do that? So that was my inspiration. Um, That's really interesting. And so you, you made that connection between what was going on with the medical students and, and the students you were working with. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your background here in Athens County and the settings that you were in as a professional and, and then how you drew art break into those settings. Uh, a school counselor is my background and training. I'm also a, a clinical counselor. I was a, a school counselor for three um, elementary schools uh, in, in Athens County and I had a pretty large caseload, variety of all different kinds of things going on with children that I saw. And um, some of them had very high needs and I wanted to be able to Keep, keep in touch with them on a, even a weekly basis and also provide a way for um, teachers to refer students who needed some extra support. So um, that's, that's how it started. And when, when you were doing that in the, um, the county schools, were you doing that as part of classrooms where you went into them? Were you doing it as part of therapeutic, more individual interventions or a combination there? This was a, um, a studio that I set up in, in two of my schools, and they were actually in the Athens City Schools. Mm-hmm. Um, 
located in different different spots around the town. Um, and so it was studio-based in my, my room, my office. One of the studio, studios was very small, another was larger. It began to flow into the classroom, however. Children would bring their work back. Mm-hmm. Teachers would come in. They'd say, can you, can you get this? Can you help me get this started in my classroom? Like, yes, of course. <laughs> and so it began to spread um, into, into the individual classrooms. And I would help the teachers um, with materials, how you set the materials up, the, the child-centered way in which to approach it. Teachers are... So good at being child-centered. I think we don't. They don't get the opportunity um, because of so many um, of the of the requirements that they have to be as child-centered as they w- would like. So it's quite a natural mm-hmm. thing for them to to put that child-centered hat on. So just get them started. Yeah. Um, it, it looks easy when you that you would walk in and say, "Oh, here are all the children. They're working. There's materials everywhere." And it's not a matter of just putting materials out and say, "Go." There's some very careful work to to help guide mm-hmm. them. Um, so that they can be successful. Yeah, and, that, and we'll, we'll probably touch on yes. some of that as we go through the book, but that's really what your book is trying to lay out. It is. is some of the intentional decisions that need to be made, like with any lesson plan, in order to be able to implement this. Exactly, yeah. yes. I, I, early in the book, you made a really uh, compelling case for uh, art break when you were talking about the importance of play for children. And this is something that has actually come up a couple times in various podcasts that we've mm-hmm. done on Teaching Matters. And and the point that you made and that I've heard others make is that children's lives are so programmed now uh, that there's not as much time for play as, say, when you and I were growing up and our parents released us to the neighborhood for so hours at a time. Go outside right? and play. And <laughs> yeah. we did. Yes. So what are some of the pressures that are causing children to have less opportunities for play now? And why do you think play is so important? Well, I have to shake my head because um, it's been 100 years or more since some of our educational philosophers, Piaget, Vygotsky, uh, social worker Edith Cobb, began telling us about the importance of play for children. And so we're still... um, uh, having to resurrect um, that that notion that play is very important, um, social competence in play, uh, the ability, a, a foundation for lifelong creativity, that children can have the freedom to choose and and uh, what they're going to do and actually carry that out. Competence um, lays the groundwork for for as adults to, uh, the ability to be socially competent and have the ability to produce complex, organized fields. You know, complexity. What, what creativity is, is bringing things together to produce something new. But this, this groundwork is laid in childhood. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so children are programmed. I think there's also some fear today. Um, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, warranted among families to keep their children safe and worries about what might happen. Um, they're out wandering the neighborhood or in the woods. Uh, they might be safer <laughs> in the woods than anywhere else. Um, so... So children, and then there's all there are also pressures to accomplish things, um, uh, burnish the child's resume, um, have all these experiences scripted, uh, and there's also a great deal um, of homework mm-hmm. uh, in many places. And we're starting to back off of of uh, we're we're taking I think a second look at how the necessity for lots and lots of homework and what's really the critical aspects of homework and what is, what is not, so that children have time mm-hmm. with their families and for play. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I've, uh, I, I think you're dead on with that idea that it is a combination of factors that does include a certain amount of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that it um, is a very um, – it's not new. I think that we've seen it for a while. Mm-hmm. It's certainly growing, but it is something that's unique to the millennial and post-millennial mm-hmm. students that wasn't 
the case necessarily before. Uh, and it is, you know, and, and when you think about the implications of it, it, it really comes down to you in each given day, you know, a student is waking up, probably going to school fairly early. Um, yes. Their program, Especially the high schoolers. That's right. It, yeah. yeah. Have to be there by 730. <laughs> oh. I know that. Um, and, and their day is, is fully programmed mm-hmm. at school. Uh, and, and then, you know, if they have extracurricular activities mm-hmm. afterwards. and if, then they have If you want to play your sport, sport right. and have time for your sport or your yeah. activity. And so, so by the time they wake up until they literally go to sleep, you know, it is you're sort of accounting for every every hour of the day. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that's just true for the um, high school kids. I, I even see that with the um, the elementary oh, school children. Yes. So you know, yes. they might they might go to an after school program. Mm-hmm. So I think your point that there's a lot of time demands on children that starts to mimic the time demands of adulthood is 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 spot on. And I think the point you're trying to make in the book is that instances of play that could include art breaks is really critical to counteracting some of that. Yes, giving breathers to children and also building up skills. And um, Peter Gray, who's written the the book on uh, free free to play, um, has made the point that as as the amount of time for free play or even guided play has become limited, um, diagnoses of anxiety and depression in children has has increased. Hmm. Um, So there's there's taking its mental health toll as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Let's transition to talking uh, in a bit more detail now about um, the, the specific intervention that you are discussing in the book. So you actually talk about art break or art breaks. Is it plural? Should I art be? break? Okay, let's take an art break. <laughs> okay, so you actually talk about art break as being a specific type of therapeutic intervention. Mm-hmm. So it's not just playtime. There is a purpose behind it. There is a mm-hmm. a rigor in how it is enacted by the teacher mm-hmm. or the professional. Mm-hmm. Can you sort of go in and maybe in broad strokes, but go mm-hmm. into some detail about what art break is? and how it mm-hmm. constitutes a therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, when you think about a taxonomy of play, there is free play in which the children go outside or wherever and entirely are, are unsupervised by adults and play and do their own play. Then there is guided play where there is an adult present who kind of provides a framework and, assistant, and assistance, and that's where art break would fall. You kind of work your way down to work disguised as play. You know? um, so this was, is guided play where there is uh, an adult who is setting a framework, um, some uh, very simple ground rules, take care of each other, take care of the stuff, um, and use, using a teacher term, uh, providing scaffolding uh, mm-hmm. for students, teaching a skill. Here's, mm-hmm. how you, here's how you punch holes with an awl safely, and here's how you use the hot glue gun, and here's what you can do with watercolor. Some teaching um, about uh, using materials and then let them choose how they're going to use it and all kinds of things develop from that. So there's a, there's a three-part framework to, uh, to, to, the, to the art break, to an art break, and that one is choice-based, uh, ch- child-centered, co- based on Carl Rogers. Toward the end of his life, um, he went from his person-centered um, psychology to person-centered, child-centered education. So it's child-centered, and that requires, at, at least for me and anyone, to be a, a really reflective practitioner. And, and am I being child-centered? In the book, I talk about my journey. Um, mm-hmm. learning how to be practicing child-centered. The other is a, a framework from art therapy, which is called the Expressive Therapies Continuum, and that is different uh, media can accomplish different things. Very fluid media, it's very expressive, very uh, media, like if you're, if you're sculpting or making um, paper um, collages, that is a different process. It can bring in more cognitive skills. So different skills and 
according to what you're working with with the media. The other is group process, and uh, it dawned on me, being a counselor, I have been completely schooled and experienced in group Mm -hmm. process, and I was about a year into one of these and observing what was happening in the studio. I thought, oh, group process, of course. You know, we start the groups and we figure out what the rules are, and it takes a while to become a, a working group, and then when you see that happen... In an art break studio, it's very exciting. So attending to those three things, mm-hmm. um, the materials, your, your child-centeredness, and group process. You were In one, one of the middle chapters of the book, you were describing that continuum, um, uh, the name of it, the expressive therapy continuum, that I thought was really interesting. And, and maybe I want to ask you to go into a bit more mm-hmm. detail. So let's say there's a, and maybe this is a bad scenario. So if you have a better scenario, feel go free, right? <laughs> but, but let's say that, that um, I'm a teacher and I have a child in my classroom that um, isn't disruptive, but I, I start to observe as having some emotional mm-hmm. um, inability to control their emotions, mm-hmm. and so that's a specific, um, you know, a specific behavior that I might want to work with you to try to figure out an intervention that would be appropriate for the child. So, based upon the therapeutic continuum, are there certain types of art modalities? that might be particularly suited to developing that sort of emotional well, intelligence? Well, con- contr- uh, when you, your, your example of not being able to, to control control your emotions, we would see that happen in art break when a child becomes frustrated that they can't accomplish something that they want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Either someone else has the green paint and they can't <laughs> use it, or they can't figure out, they're, they're building a robot and they can't figure out how to make it stand. They always want to make long, thin legs because that's what legs are, but but the robots need, a robot will fall over if it doesn't have strong enough legs. So learning how to manage materials and also to negotiate uh, and, and accommodate the needs of other children. So we see that happen often in heartbreak. So for that child, and, and you see them get frustrated and you just direct them, you know, you have a spot outside where they can go sit and collect themselves. Just take a break, take a break, go sit and collect yourself and then come back. I'll help you. Someone asks someone else. There might be another child who can help you mm-hmm. with this. And so they work it out. So I would refer them, you know, refer them to a group setting mm-hmm. that would involve both group dynamics and as well as um, media mm-hmm. where that they, they could either create frustration from them for themselves when they're trying to do something or they could back away from that. I've, we've seen children trying to construct and working their way along and just having to take a break and go finger paint for a minute and relax mm-hmm. and come back to the task. So it teaches them how they can um, self-soothe, get themselves in hand, and accomplish what they want to accomplish. Yeah, I thought that was a really fascinating discussion uh, to think about okay, there are a lot of different art modalities in yeah. that depending upon your feelings in a given moment, a certain modality might be more helpful than others. I thought that absolutely. was really interesting. It absolutely is. And if someone is really, really uh, stressed, I can think of a child who came in one day. She was so upset because the police had come the night before and mm. arrested her father, taken him away. She just couldn't, couldn't hardly sit still in the classroom. So she came and finger-painted for about 30 minutes, relaxed. So these kinesthetic, it's a, a kinesthetic expressive thing, mm-hmm. um, fluid media. Now, I don't want to get too uh, research wonky in mm-hmm. this question, but you used a very specific research methodology called action research mm-hmm. for the basis of your book. Can you briefly describe what that means? Well, the way we use it is pretty pretty simple. It, it was um, action research is designed to inform your work as you go along. And so we started Art Break. I began to take notes on process, 
on my own self-reflections of myself as a facilitator. The school psychologists would come in and observe and help make observations. Um, we would meet and talk. I would look at my notes, and we would then adjust things as we went along. We learned that we needed a 40-minute session instead of a 30-minute session. It was mm -hmm. too short. We started out as a drop-in where teachers could refer students who needed immediate attention, but we discovered that the children wanted to come back, the teachers wanted to send them back, so it turned into a group that met all year long, and we just ended up forming more groups, so we adjusted that. Um, we also mixed ages. We wondered how that was going to work. We did mm -hmm. it for convenience, for schedules. Mm -hmm. This fifth grader can come here, this kindergartner. It turned out to be um, a really wonderful thing. Uh, the old, they, they could learn from each other. Mm -hmm. So we adjusted as we went along with the action research by documenting, sit down every day, document, process, um, document, progress of children. We would write progress notes uh, for families sent home what the children were doing. Um, so did I answer that question? You is, did, you know, yeah. And, and so I, I think the, the key point is that action research is obviously different than what we might call a controlled experiment or a yeah. survey in that you're actually – studying the intervention as you as were implementing you it, it yes. but doing so in a very systematic way so that yes. you can draw conclusions both in terms of the effectiveness but also to make changes as you're doing it. Yes, so what we're learning all, mm -hmm. all along. So we also did some some very quantitative research oh, okay. uh, on stress mm -hmm. um, and that is we um, we measured uh, for two years. We measured children's fingertip temperatures as oh, they as they yeah. um, as they entered into the into the studio, and then about halfway through, we we'd measure it again, just on a little handheld thermometer. Fingertip temperature is a really nice um, a biological uh, indicator of stress. You know, the fight or flight syndrome. When you're stressed, all the blood goes to your core. When you're relaxed, your fingers get warm. So the first of the year, we. We taught the children how to do it, I, how to t take the measurements. They write it on their card. I would make sure, you know, stand there and watch. And um, the first year we did the calculations, school psych and I sat down and worked it out. And we were actually kind of surprised. The temperature, there were rises, statistically significant increases mm -hmm. in the temperature. So we did it another year. Uh, found the same thing, and I brought all my cards and data to Wake Forest, and one of my colleagues sat down and ran it through um, a rigorous uh, statistical uh, process, and we did find that hmm. uh, stress was lowered in um, the majority of the children who, who participated. In the book, you, you outline and document a number of benefits mm -hmm. to students um, as they engage art break as, as mm -hmm. a therapy. Um, can you talk about what some of those benefits were mm -hmm. that you observed? Well, we did notice and we documented lowered stress levels, which is so important. Uh, many children come to school loaded up with, with stress that's in their lives. And we know that um, lots of long-term small stressors can have the same effect as one big traumatic event. So that's important. School itself can also be uh, mm -hmm. stressful for, for children. So uh, we, we lowered stress and, and provided a little breather in their day with what we would call positively toned um, emotions. Um, Children learn to work together. I, I can tell about one group that um, I despaired that they would ever be able to work together. Um, but we persevered. And uh, then once, so one day I was sitting in my office and shh, I heard this noise of something sliding. And I looked and I heard footsteps running. Mm -hmm. And I looked and there was a shelf that had been sitting out ready to go to the recycling. Uh, and it had been moved outside my, my room, the studio. And then that day in art break, the children came in and they had somehow got there in different classrooms. They had collaborated to find a space when they could somehow come together 
during the the school day, get, leave class. I get them in between lunch, and they move the um, the shelf outside my office, and then. Then they approached me and said, can we paint that shelf? <laughs> so they had organized themselves out of the group, and uh, someone had just given us some beautiful red paint. So they painted it. They sang while they painted. They ornamented it, and it became a really uh, special piece of furniture in the school. So that's, uh, a, that's a collaboration with a group that sure. I despaired of that would ever, ever happen. That's a great story, though, mm-hmm. and it actually illustrates uh, you know, the idea – potentially of self-directed learning. Yes. And and having trust in a facilitator, an adult, who's not going to scold you for moving the mm-hmm. thing around, but will say, okay, we'll, we'll take this adventure. You have thought of this. I will support you in doing this. That's great. Yeah, that yeah. was fun. Um, also, individual children were very much uh, noticed um, and that they would work through traumas that I knew that they'd had in their lives, making things that were essentially visual metaphors for their experience and working their way over time through that trauma, through drawings, um, installations, uh, sculptures, and so forth. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a couple times that you've mentioned the word trauma, and you gave an example previously, but there's a specific phrase that you use in one of the chapters, trauma-sensitive school culture. What do you mean by that? Exactly. Well, um, according to what we know from, from the American Psychological Association, about half of children in the United States experience some kind of trauma, usually beginning in early childhood. Most recover, but a substantial number do not. And so um, it's important to have a school that attends to that. And some of the um, some of the ways a school can be attentive to, to uh, uh, being as trauma-sensitive is to include an opportunities for children to move into a state of calmness from a state of alarm just like the child I described who finger-painted before mm-hmm. before class started. Um, to develop, it's important for traumatized children to have a sense of empowerment via choices. I have some control here in this situation. Here are the choices, that I, the safe choices that I can make. Um, practice using language to articulate what they need, to ask for what they need. In our break, I need some more water for this. I need some more. Can you go get us some um, potatoes so we can make prints, you know, with potato prints? Um, so they're encouraged to ask what they need from each other and from the facilitator. Um, learn to attend to a task at hand in a safe and predictable environment. If you're in an unsafe environment, you're always wary and on, on your guard. Mm-hmm. You can begin to understand that there are places where you can be safe and you can be engaged in what you're doing safely. Um, and also practice uh, ways for students to practice and have support for, for regulating their emotions, having a take-a-break place in every class. Many teacher, teachers do this all the time, have a take-a-break place for, for students to uh, recover mm-hmm. and then come back um, to work. You know, as you're describing this, I think there's an important lesson in what you're saying that it's not just about art break where what you just described is important. It's really a part of the entire school culture. And so that means that the principal, the the teaching staff, really everyone in the school has to understand the importance of this to really be able to implement it effectively. So it can be embedded in, in, the, right. in the whole school culture, in mm-hmm. the classroom. And there are many efforts um, towards this. And there, there are many teachers who, who work, yeah. work towards this, but it, 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 it's important. And, and it benefits all children. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I remember my, uh, my high school principal, and I've, I've talked yeah. with him about this years later as mm-hmm. I became more interested in education research, but he, he described himself as a walk-around principal. And <gasps> he said yeah. every, you know, regardless of what he was doing in his office, when the bell rang for class transition, he would leave his office and just walk around and talk to, t- 
talk to students. He would be present. That's right. That's right. And and I think that in was a supportive part. way. That's right. Yeah. And it wasn't to go out and find people to yell at them. It was just to see how they were doing. And and years later, when I talked with him about that, because I you know as a high school student, it's not like you're analyzing your principal's behaviors, right? But but you're noticing. You're oh, noticing. Children it. notice. Yeah, yeah. And then years later, when I had some terminology and some theory, you know, to put <gasps> to that behavior, I asked Mr. Tigner about that, and he said. You know, he basically said, I wanted to create a climate in the school where students understood who I was and felt that they could approach and talk to me about anything. And it was also important for the staff to see me doing that. You know, it's just a really intentional philosophy that I think, I don't know if the word trauma-sensitive school culture was, you know, present in the it, late 1980s, but... Child-centered. Yeah, yeah. Student-centered. That's yeah. right. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm here for you. What's going on with you? Yeah. yeah. Um, Lissa, Beautiful. let's transition a little bit now to talking about um, how um, uh, staff might be able to implement this. And of course, we will provide information about your book. I think that your book provides a lot of really practical suggestions. It gives, walks you through the whole thing. Yeah. And it has, uh, um, we call, don't call them lesson plans, we call them session plans. Mm-hmm. What, should you, what, what might your first session look like, your second one? What can you do at the beginning? How do you introduce mater- new materials? Instructions, if you are... See, adults, I think, are more fearful of art than students are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if you want to get to – in a whole chapter on if you want to get comfortable with finger paint, here's some things you can try mm-hmm. for all different media, just uh, – easy ways to introduce yourself. So for listeners, uh, you'll be able to click a link to um, go to the Swallow Press website to be able to purchase the book. Mm -hmm. And also it's available through other online booksellers. Mm -hmm. So for teachers, uh, as they finish reading your book and they're wanting to implement it, um, what's the best advice that you can give them for creating what you called a soul for the studio? A soul for the studio. That's a thread that goes through some some parts of teaching. It is child the child-centered, um, sticking to that child-centered notion. And for me, that required just a lot of self-reflection. It's, it's watching yourself and uh, reflecting on your language that you use. Um, I think I recounted uh, one day when students came in, we'd had a long series of snow days, and we hadn't <laughs> been in the studio. I don't know, for two weeks, and they came in, and it's really hard to te- get children to clean up, <laughs> but but I, I chipped away at it, and when they came in, they were just, uh, stuff was everywhere, working furiously, they wouldn't, <laughs> couldn't get themselves to stop, you heard my language, they wouldn't stop, mm-hmm. uh, they were, uh, couldn't get themselves to stop and clean up, left, the studio was a mess, and I was I am going to close the studio next time. I was thinking of revenge, and I had to sit down <laughs> and reflect and think, wait a minute, they have not been here for two weeks. They are so excited. They're excited to be back in here. They couldn't stop working. They need a reminder of what our processes are. So I simply talked to them and said, well, well tell me what is a good way for me to, to help you know it's time to, to clean up. And they said, well, just... um." Why don't you flip the lights when you give us a five-minute notice for cleanup, and, and, and that will help us. So I tried it, and it worked. So that's, you know, a, a child-centered environment. Also, mm-hmm. you know, you can think of things like music. Um, music has so many, I mean, people have many opinions about music. I ended up playing the same CD over and over again, and, and they it was a, uh, a jazz, um, modern jazz quartet. Uh, it had a lot of warmth, some some rhythm, you know, some energy to it, and but and it was low key, and it provided a really nice backdrop. And if I'd forget to put it on, they'd remind me. Um, so, uh, having things accessible for students, you know, you just all anything you can do to make it child centered, mm-hmm. and have a, a warmth of feeling in it, you know, uh, humor, a little bit of humor, 
good nature. Um, if a child, uh, you know, knocks over some paint on the floor, and their first re they freeze. You know, their first reaction is, "I'm in such trouble," and you just notice and say, "Okay, here's how we clean it up." You know, go ahead. So, uh, uh, putting them at their comfort. Teachers can can be really good at this. Mm -hmm. um, there's the responsive classroom model has been used in the Athens schools, which is a, is a way to to create a, a warmth a, a warmth of soul in. Uh, in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And you make an important point. Um, you know, your book uh, and your, well, your experiences professionally has been as a school counselor yeah. where you were doing very intentional interventions mm -hmm. probably. But really this is something that any teacher in any classroom can any do. Any teacher in any classroom can do. And I would, uh, some of the teachers that I worked with started putting it into practice and they all, it, it was, it's really the same thing began to happen. Um, the same dynamics, uh, the same uh, warmth and excitement of the children. Any teacher can do this. You can do it in um, a small way and just have a uh, uh, some tubs packed away and you bring them out. You can have a permanent thing set up. They're the school. Um, art teachers are wonderful. Uh, there's a whole thing about um, child-centered mm -hmm. choice-based art making, and your art educator in a school could be a wonderful companion to helping this get going. We also did a summer program at the libraries, and I worked with the children's librarians. It wasn't uh, re children were not referred for therapeutic reasons. They just came for the mm -hmm. summer. And the same thing, the same dynamics happened. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it can be dropped into a classroom, mm -hmm. uh, a homeschooling environment, libraries. Uh, it's it's um, uh, an effective um, uplift in a child's day, restorative thing um, that actually benefits the facilitators as mm -hmm. well. Pretty do easy to do. So do you think that um, certainly as, as a teacher or anybody in a school setting goes through your book, there's so many potential takeaway messages. What about parents? Is there something for parents to learn as well? Well, we began to correspond with parents um, because the children were bringing home so many things. Um, <laughs> and what do we do with it? And sometimes mm -hmm. they were so big that I would have to drop them off or the parents would have to bring, you know, the pickup truck to bring them, the bring them, sure. bring yeah. them home. Yeah. So we began to send things home uh, about here's some what you can do. Just set it up for a while and then you can take it apart and recycle it or, you know, put it on the refrigerator, give it to somebody. Um, and then uh, the children would quite naturally begin to accumulate stuff at home and sort of ask to create their own little art break areas in the home. And the parents would say, all right. I would see a parent at the grocery store, and they'd say, well, how do we do this? This is what they want to do now. How do we do this? So it's, it's very easy to drop into your, your household. Mm -hmm. um, Child-centered, have an array of, of uh, media from the very fluid media like finger paint and watercolors to uh, construction kinds of materials, cardboard, um, whatever you need, duct tape. <laughs> yeah. Used a lot of duct tape. <laughs> yeah. The transition from silver duct tape to all the patterns was very oh, significant, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> well, I, you oh. know, I'm excited to think about ways that we um, could even use art break and um, non-traditional uh, ways in college classrooms. Oh, I have really thought about it. I think there's great corporate application, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, in any setting that adults work in, mm -hmm. uh, college classrooms or some sort of collaborative space where there's because when you're, it's a different elementary students versus college students, you up your game a little bit with the materials mm -hmm. um, and have um, like art graduate students who are knowledgeable about materials, but self um, choice based studios for students to work in as a, 
uh, restorative uplift, mm-hmm. um, huge potential. And, you know, it's, I mean, in thinking about this, it's really not, it is about the art, obviously, mm-hmm. but but as you think about connections to like STEM education or what we might say STEAM education right. in the lingo, I mean, there's really applications for this for students that are not art students and are not, you know, this is something that really unleashes, totally. right? It does. It builds a base of self-efficacy, freedom, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the groundwork for creativity, whatever the creativity is going to be. Mm-hmm. I can think of an idea. There's some help here for me, and I can execute it and, and do it. Catherine, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Um, it My was, favorite uh, topic. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was really fascinating to read the book. And uh, if listeners are interested, again, the title is Artbreak, A Creative Guide to Joyful and Productive Classrooms, available through the Swallow Press at Ohio University. Uh, and you can also find it through online booksellers. Uh, it's, a, it's a very enjoyable read and I think very practical for… And pictures. Uh, it, there's great pictures mm-hmm. in there. I actually noticed that one of our former students… Josh Birnbaum. Josh was a photographer. Yeah, was a they're, photographer. They're from so. our summer program. Program and mm-hmm. it's got wonderful pictures. There are know? great pictures mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, it's very, and it's a really good example of how um, data collection and action research goes beyond just taking notes on a piece of paper. Yes. The visual element is extremely important to yes. that, to be able to document. You know, in a picture, you see a thousand words, and so you see the child not only doing the art, but you see the expression on their face, mm-hmm. which, from a research standpoint, would not have been noted probably in a you know in a form that you're filling out at the end of a day, but you see it in the picture. So important for um, people to think about that element of research as they're conducting it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Catherine. You're welcome. Um, and thank to the thank you to the listeners for listening to Teaching Matters. This uh, program is produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at wub.org/perspectives or through a variety of other methods uh, that you can download the podcast and listen to it on your mobile devices. Our audio engineer today is uh, the ever popular Adam Rich. Uh, we thank him for being here. I'm Scott Titsworth, and also special thanks to Tim Vickers of Ohio University's Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program on behalf of WUB Public Media. Thank you for listening and have a great day.